This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. My daughter killed her first mule deer this last fall, and I went on that hunt. I've never been on a hunt with my husband, so I got to be there and watch her do that, clean the animal, um, you know, break the animal down go through the organs, decide what organs we wanted to take, see, get all the meat off, carry the bone, do all that hard work, carry it out on my back at night because my husband's seriously into killing animals right before dark and then doing night hikes out in the snow, in the wind, exhausted, wake up the next day. And there is a sense of satisfaction that is unlike any satisfaction you will get going to a grocery store and putting me in your cart. Because all of a sudden you have this neural association, this hormonal association to this animal that gave, you took this animal's life. Now you are working hard to get this animal back home so that you can eat this animal and you can take the nutrition from this animal. And so your whole idea of like food and food waste and just throwing stuff away, it just radically changes it. And I think that that is probably, I feel like the biggest thing that we've lost in our culture is this respect for food. I'm Dr. Hillary Lampers, and this is the Tom Rowland Podcast. What's going on, everybody? Welcome to the podcast today. We got a really interesting one for you today. Dr. Hillary Lampers from Hunt Harvest Health Podcast. She does it with her husband, Ryan Lampers, who's a very accomplished hunter out there. They live in Bozeman, Montana. And Dr. Lampers is a uh, certified, licensed naturopathic doctor. And we're going to talk today about all sorts of uh, conditions that are plaguing the United States population. 
and what we can do about them. And she has some really amazing advice. And uh, I really enjoyed this conversation. I learned a ton. So get out your notebook because you're probably going to want to take some notes on this one. She is very smart, very with it, and uh, very interesting. So here's Dr. Hillary Lampers. Dr. Hillary Lampers, how are you? I'm good, Tom. How are you doing? I'm great. Thanks for doing this. I really appreciate it. Um, I've been doing some research on you and listening to your podcast. I really like it. I like the, I like the, I, you you know, you do something kind of similar to what I do. Like I have these Mm -hmm. long form things, but then I have a how to Tuesday and I have a physical Friday and you're doing like hunting. Well, it's called hunt harvest health. So your husband, Ryan, is an accomplished hunter. You guys live in Bozeman. And uh, so there's lots of Western hunting talk. But then you have this whole other angle that you're bringing into this podcast. And so you Mm -hmm. are a doctor of naturopathic medicine, right? Yes. Uh Uh-huh. So explain that. What is a doctor of naturopathic medicine? And how is that different from a naturopath? Yeah, good question. So I uh, have been a naturopathic doctor since 2007. Um, Prior to that, I worked for a naturopath for 10 years. um, And I was a massage therapist. And I have an undergrad pre-med focus with a nutrition undergrad. So I was a nutritionist as well, kind of got me through med school. Um, I went to a university in Seattle, Washington, which is where I actually, my husband is from Washington and um, I had moved there after a couple of years. I went to MSU here in Bozeman. I grew up in Bozeman, went to MSU for a couple of years and then just decided the funny thing is, is I, um, I was in a major in 1991 called health and wellness promotion, Mm -hmm. which Nobody knew what that was. And it was a new major. And I thought, sure, I guess I'll do this major because I really didn't know what I wanted to do. And there was two people, me and one other girl in this major. They ended up eventually getting rid of that major. But I know now universities actually have that degree called health and wellness promotion. So I left MSU. I went to Seattle. And then just over the years, I did all my education there. And I went to a university called Bastyr University which is a four-year medical school um, after I had finished my undergrad. I was a bit of a late bloomer. I started working um, as a massage therapist and was working with injury patients, head trauma, car accidents, that kind of stuff, and went to this naturopathic physician who did this really strange therapy for headaches that I was having. And he just changed my health and kind of changed my whole perception. So I got a job working for him and I worked for him for 10 years. And in that time I wanted to do this therapy, but I had to be a doctor. So I ended up going back to school, getting my undergrad at 27. I went back to school and got my undergrad. I got accepted into medical school and I did that. Um, the difference between a naturopathic physician who's actually certified and licensed, um, there are naturopaths that can get their license online and they're through online universities, which uh, it's a whole different association and a whole different group of people. So they they might have undergrad degrees or whatnot, but um, this was years ago. They could basically we call them diploma mills. So you could go and you could take all your courses online and then you could get a license and then you could call yourself a doctor. Um, but really to be a doctor, just like an MD, you know, you have to go to school, you have to do so many hours of, um, undergrad, uh, sciences, and then you have to do clinical boards. You know, we had cadaver dissection and we had in class, you know, anatomy, physiology, pathology, all of those for two years, 
take your, you take your clinical boards to get into clinical shifts um, so that you can work in the clinics. And then after the two years, we're, we're pretty much identical to the University of Washington Medical School for the first two years. That's when they weed all the pe- people out, basically people that can't handle it. And uh, when you take your boards, that then allows you to um, be able to work in the patient clinic. And that's where you start doing clinical rounds. Um, and that kind of thing. So MDs do the same first two years and then they do their clinical boards and then they start deciding what's going to be more of their specialty. So they're either going to go into neurology or cardiology or gynecology or whatever it is. And so they also are um, learning a lot more pharmacology and surgery. Uh, And we are learning because of our scope of practice. I mean, we can do minor surgery, like we could remove lipomas. It depends on the state you're licensed in, but you can do some minor surgery procedures, but you're mainly doing lifestyle medicine, primary care. We're trained as primary care providers. And so we can do things, all the physical exam from, you know, sports physicals to gynecological exams. Um, obviously to deliver babies, you have to be an OBGYN or a midwife. So that's a whole different training, but basically primary care providers. And then our specialty is in lifestyle medicine. So we're going to be talking to you more about your nutrition and your sleep and your gut, you know, your exercise and your movement. And then of course, nutrients and Depending on the state you're licensed in as well, we we can prescribe medications. Um, I'm licensed in both Washington State and I'm licensed in Montana. So both of those states, I, I can prescribe, you know, antibiotics. I do a lot of hormone therapy. So that's really my specialty is endocrinology. And I started with a keen interest in neurology and traumatic brain injury. So that just kind of led me naturally into hormone therapy because a lot of people that suffer with brain injury, they suffer with atrophic brain issues that are from hormone depletions. Mm. And also men tend to struggle more with those because obviously men tend to get more head traumas just based on what they do. Um, Men between the ages of 15 and 25 that have the highest preponderance of head trauma um, based on sports and just the way men are, you know, fighting and accidents, driving their car crazy, that kind of thing. Yeah. So you'll also see a lot of hormone deficiencies in men when they've had these traumas. So I just kind of naturally went into that, but, uh, that's, that's the difference. And so we just have, we, we have accreditation, we have licensing. Um, we do not have like an MD. I'm not exactly sure how an MD, but I think they can get like, they get licensed nationally or, you know, they have a, a, a bit of a different setup. Uh Um, and they have hospital rights typically, or they can work for a hospital. A lot of them do surgery, um, and pharmacology. And so we don't, you know, we're not working in hospitals. Um, unfortunately they're trying to get a movement where naturopaths can have more rights to at least admit people to hospitals. Um, but we're working mainly in private practices, um, specialty care, um, medi clinics where, you know, there's a lot of aesthetics and hormones and stuff like that going on. So, um, but yeah, the clinic I work in, we have everything from pediatrics through, um, I do a lot of cognitive as well because I'm dealing middle age. I'm also just about to get licensed in the Bredesen protocol, which is for preventing cognitive decline and helping people with that reverse their cognitive decline before they get to Alzheimer's. Really? So, um, that's been really, because that's, again, was my initial area of interest. I have a lot of neurodegenerative disease in my family. My grandpa died with Alzheimer's and his mom and his, aunt, his sister and his aunt. And then my other grandma died of Parkinson's. So 
I want to try to warn those things off as long as I can. Yeah. If or not get them at all. And so. to do that without I mean, without drugs or or surgery, if possible, right? Yeah, you know, um, unfortunately, Alzheimer's is a really interesting condition because there's literally been billions of dollars thrown at it for research, and there's not one single ounce of there's not one single thing that has ever come out of any of that research that actually has fixed Alzheimer's disease. Um, there's some drugs that have come out of it, but even those drugs don't cure it, don't get rid of it. They just kind of prolong the uh, the cognitive decline. And as we know, we're having an aging population. So people are living longer and um, late onset Alzheimer's usually starts to happen later, like in the late seventies, eighties, that's, that age as people get older and women suffer with it more. Uh, women have a much higher preponderance of um, dementia and, and Alzheimer's. And there's a lot of correlations as to why that is. But the, the main reason they think is because of estrogen depletion at menopause. Um, estrogen is a very trophic or trophic means growth hormone for the brain as well as testosterone. And so when the, when the ovaries go to sleep at menopause, women lose uh, estradiol, which is E2. It's a very potent estrogen and they'll lose some testosterone as well. And the brain has more estrogen and testosterone receptors than any organ in the body. So they think women maybe tend to go towards more Alzheimer's because of that estrogen depletion. Mm -hmm. Um, and of course, you know, they're saying like one third of the population is going to have Alzheimer's. I mean, this is like a huge number. And if this is true, this is going to completely bankrupt the medical system. Um, the care for Alzheimer's care is astronomical. The, the cost, I mean, for Alzheimer's care is astronomical. Um, you know, if you don't have long term care uh, that can pay for your $10,000 or more a month care in a um, long-term brain health or Alzheimer's facility, you know, your family is going to be strapped uh, or you're going to end up going through Medicare and you may be getting put in facilities that are really not the best facility that you want to be in. Or a lot of what's happening is a lot of families are taking on caretaking of their loved one. And that can be really difficult because as you get into advanced stages of Alzheimer's, obviously it's more than just cognitive decline. You also have physical um, issues and decline and that kind of thing. So Alzheimer's is a big deal and it's going to affect a lot of people, but there are actually ways that you can prevent cognitive decline. And if you have family risk or you know that you're genetically high risk, there are things that you can do to put the brakes on that now. Well, and that so doc, be my yeah. next question, like what, what can you do? Um, so there is a great book called the end of Alzheimer's, which I highly re recommend anybody over 40 or anybody that has any Alzheimer's disease in their family, read that book. It's very reader friendly. It's, it's layperson friendly. And Dr. Bredesen is a researcher that has actually been studying re uh, Alzheimer's for over 20 years. And he was saying, you know, why are, why is all this money being thrown at Alzheimer's? There's no medications that seem to work. Nothing seems to fix it. And they've always gone down this road that it's the it's the tangles and the tau proteins and these plaques that you develop in your brain that eventually cause you to have a shrinking of the brain and Alzheimer's. And this is like one faceted thing they've been looking at, you know, for most of Alzheimer's research. And what we found is that what he found in his research was that if he looked at multiple different factors within the person's lifestyle and biochemistry, as well as genetics, there's about 30 
I could be getting this wrong. There's like 32 to 36 different factors that play in to cognitive issues. It's not just it's not just uh, plaques in the brain. Why are people getting plaques in the brain? That's probably the most important question. And he found that it has to do with a number of different factors. So one of the big factors is blood sugar management. Um, we have uh, another factor is inflammation. Another factor is toxin exposure. And then the other one is atrophic. So basically loss of hormones hmm. over time helps the brain to shrink. Uh, these plaques are developed in a lot of cases because sometimes people will have a, oh, and then genetic risk factors in there. So there is a protein. It's a lipoprotein. It carries cholesterol. It's called the APOE, uh, lipo, APOE, APOE lipoprotein. It's kind of weird. And you have three different alleles and this is completely genetic. So you get one from mom and you get one from dad and it's either two, three, or four you can get. Two, they found is actually protective against cognitive decline. Three is middle ground, and it's the allele that most Americans have. And four is a lipoprotein that's more inflammatory, where you can't clear cholesterol, toxic cholesterol from the brain as fast. And so let's say mom gave you a three and dad gave you a four. So you now have what's called an APOE4 three phenotype. Now, the 3-3 phenotype is the most common in the United States. And it's kind of like, you might get dementia, you might not. Like, it's not that. But if you have a four, or if you have two fours, if mom and dad both gave you a four, your chances with one allele, I think, is a 19% to 20% higher chance of Alzheimer's disease. And if you have two alleles, you're over 50% chance higher than somebody that doesn't have one allele. Wow. Okay. So it's, um, and this is where a lot of the research was going when they started doing research was towards this APOE4 and how do we change this lipoprotein activity in the brain. Um, but Dr. Bredesen just started researching this and then he started looking at lifestyle factors. So what really drives this APOE4? What are the things that can make APOE4 E4 be more dangerous because it's doing its job. It's just that APOE4 is slower than let's say APOE2. It doesn't, you don't clear a lipids from the brain, toxic lipids as fast. And so they just kind of hang out more and they cause more damage. Now, if your blood sugars are a mess, this is going to add to that. Um, if your cholesterols are abnormal, are too high in the wrong direction. So you have a lot of LDLs, not enough HDLs. Um, this could be one reason. If you have mold exposure or toxicity mm. in your environment, which is super common, yeah. right? Like you live in a very warm, humid place. Mm -hmm. When we lived in Seattle, I wouldn't say it was warm, but we lived in a rainforest. So we had lots of water and lots of mold issues. Um, the key is probably a great example of being having lots of water around and lots of uh, exposure to mold if you're not careful. And living in old homes, um, heavy metals. So lead paints, mercury, um, fish. I mean, you're a fisherman, right? Like mercury and heavy metal exposure and the fish that we're catching and eating, how is that affecting our body? Um, and then the other one is looking at, uh, hormones and how deficient you are in hormones because your brain needs a lot of hormone to make signals happen within the body. And so he just started researching all these and he started taking patients that were having cognitive decline. And he started doing programs on them, like 
leveling out blood sugars and making their lipids better and um, getting them to exercise. And if they had APOE4, not drink alcohol, um, make sure you're getting enough sleep, not eating a ton of um, super fatty animal rich foods. And the other thing he did was put these people on a ketogenic diet. Hmm. And he finds that the ketogenic diet is the most supportive diet for the brain. And, and with this kind of program that he would develop for these patients, he could actually reverse cognitive decline and even pre-Alzheimer's in some patients. So he has a whole blood lab um, thing called the cognoscopy. You know, everybody gets a colonoscopy at 50. He says everybody should be getting a cognoscopy in like their 40s and getting their blood levels of all these different markers. So and what, on our website, a cognoscopy? It, cognoscopy, it's kind of like a spoof on the colonoscopy. It's like it's a cognition test that measures certain nutrients in the blood. And so it's going to measure all where you are and all your inflammatory markers, all your blood sugar markers, all your hormone markers, nutrient markers, and toxic exposures. On our website at huntharvesthealth.com, I actually have <clears throat> the lab the lab list. So you can go there for free and you can download the cognoscopy. And there's a list of questions that you would answer. And then there's the list of ranges of like, labs that you could ask your doctor to run, mm -hmm. um, et cetera. So he's, he says, if everybody knew these numbers early on and they were working to make those numbers best in range, then long-term, even if you have a genetic risk factor, you, your chances of getting cognitive decline are going to be greatly decreased. And he's proved this through research. So if you read his book, it's really great. I think now he actually has, it's called the Recode. That's what I'm getting trained in. So he has the Recode program. And that's where physicians actually work with people that are having, having cognitive decline and we help to reverse it through um, establishing all these blood markers. They do a very extensive blood test with all these markers on there. And then, um, I work with an assistant. She's a nurse practitioner and she's a coach. So she deals with all their daily stuff. And then I deal with all their lab work and helping them. Um, she deals with their cognitive testing as well. There's testing that goes along with it. And then they also have what's cool. It's called the pre-code. So it's for people like me that have a lot of family history of this these diseases that don't want to get there. So I can actually do preventative things and I can have the same labs run and I can learn how to keep myself functional. So, so that's a really long answer yeah, to it. Well, but I, I, I like that answer because it, it's, you're explaining a lot, but it gives, it leaves me with some questions. Um, so the first question, when I wrote down, <laughs> you were saying that men, uh, one of the one of the accelerators is when they decline in hormones. Is that just testosterone or are there other hormones as well? Yeah, there's a number. So the biggest hormones that we decrease in men don't do it as swiftly as women, obviously, because it's not like your testes just go to sleep, right? But we do know that <laughs> we do know that men can still even father children into their 60s and 70s. I mean, it's obviously going to be a lot harder, but it can still happen. So from the age of 30 on, supposedly the statistics are you lose about 1% of your testosterone per year. Um based on your baseline. Now, testosterone has a really big range. So if you go to your doctor, the range is 280 to 1100. But hormones, especially testosterone is one of these ranges. Some, some labs, you want to be in the middle of the range. You want to be in the middle of the functional end of the range. You don't want to be too high. You don't want to be too low. Um, 
testosterone is one that as a male, you probably want to be more on the higher end. So you want to be more towards that 1100. That's going to be more like your 20 year old guy, whereas your 280 is going to be more like an 82 year old man. So, but if you go to your physician and he draws testosterone and let's say at your age, maybe 52, maybe you're about, I mean, you're pretty healthy, but I'll, I'll say maybe you're 480. He's going to say, oh, you're fine. Mm -hmm. Uh, nothing, we don't need to do anything. Now I would agree with him if you weren't having any symptoms. So typically men, however, do not go to the doctor unless they are having symptoms and you would come in and you would say, I'm fatigued. I don't recover. I do a workout and I'm sore for three days. Um, I just don't, I'm brain fogged. I can't focus like I used to. Um, I'm not sleeping very good. I can't get into deep sleep. Um, I'm sort of moody and irritable. (laughs) Uh, and I have, and maybe, maybe not, I have no libido now, every, what will happen to most guys is they go to the doctor and they have this long list of symptoms and the doctor will say, well, you like sex, right? Or you have a libido, right? And the guy's like, well, yeah, well, you don't need to worry about your testosterone. Okay. Well, what we do know is that the brain has the most testosterone receptors of any organ in the body. So if you don't, let's say you're 480, bio, bioavailable testosterone is, is only the stuff you can bind is free. So if you do a mathematical equation out of 480, you might have 10 free testosterone. Now we know guys are going to feel best closer to 18. And when we do TRT therapy, we're, we're looking anywhere between 25 and 35. So if you're at 10 or you're a seven, I've seen guys come in at six. That's the only testosterone that can bind to your receptors. And what starts to happen over time is that your brain being this very atrophic organ, like it, I mean, not atrophic, trophic organ that needs hormones and receptors to attach so it can keep growing and all those nerves can get stimulated. It will just kind of pull receptors in because I mean, there's not a lot of testosterone. So it starts pulling receptors in and guys start just feeling not well and they can't really put their finger on it, what it is. Now, obviously, in older men over 50, sexual side effects become more evident. And that's just because we're older. And that's also because guys that are usually 50, 60, they're not having sex like the 20 year old counterpart is. Okay. So they don't think about it the same, but they will come in and they're just like, usually it's their wife who sends them in. They're like, their wife is like, all right, you need to go to the doctor now because you've been tired, irritable, cranky. You're gaining weight. You're not getting out of bed. You're not sleeping good. You're snoring at night. And, and we can talk about sleep apnea, but that's another big differential here. Um, but, and now you have no motivation for sex. You have erectile issues. You have no interest in me. You need to go to the doctor. And the guy's like, okay. So he comes in and we go through all these symptoms. And a younger guy, the sexual side effects are going to probably be at the tail end. I can have guys, younger guys, really low in testosterone. They're maybe not having the sexual side effects yet. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there is a long range, but the brain needs that testosterone for that energy, for that motivation. And testosterone is what we call the winning hormone. It's the main male hormone and you need it to get yourself motivated to do stuff. Mm. And it's exactly the same thing for women. So we disc- we we don't think about women a lot when we think about testosterone. I think when people think about testosterone and women, they think of bodybuilders who are juicing and that's what they think about. Yeah. So I'll have a lot of women come into me and they have all these symptoms and I'll run their testosterone. It's borderline low. 
And um, it's very common for women not to have libidos. So this is the other thing is society has created this stereotype that men should have these ravenous libidos all the time and that women, eh, they sort of have libidos sometime, whatever. <laughs> and especially after you have babies, a lot of husbands will come in complaining, well, yeah, I have a libido, but my wife hasn't had one in 10 years. Mm. So I just kind of like don't have one. Right. And women go, yeah, but isn't that normal? Isn't that normal not to have a libido? And we've kind of done this reverse thing where it's like, okay for women, but it's not okay for men. And what we find is that women, usually by the time they hit 40, have lost over 50% of their testosterone. And if they've had babies, it can be even worse. So women will also suffer from lack of motivation. They start losing interest in things they love to do, like hobbies and things that they enjoyed before. They're too tired. They don't want to do them. They don't have motivation. Working out is a great one. So women will come in there be like, I don't know what it is, but I used to love to work out. And now I literally could care less. I have zero motivation. I know I'm supposed to go, but I can't go. Hmm. They can't keep lean muscle mass on. They're not deep sleeping. So they're light sleeping and they can't get into REM sleep. And then they... And then, you know, so for a woman with testosterone, yeah, she might naturally have a low libido, but I always ask, do you have these other symptoms? And she's like, well, yeah, of course. So testosterone deficiency can be low in women as well, because their brains, just like men, need those testosterone receptors to be filled. It's just not at the, at the level that men have. So testosterone is men's main hormone, but there are definitely other hormones that play into it. And one of the biggest players is insulin. Mm. And we don't think about insulin as a hormone, but insulin is a hormone. And it's probably the most important hormone as far as regulating future blood sugar management and hormone function. because People think like testosterone and or estrogen dictates like how much weight you gain. Actually, it's insulin that dictates how much weight you gain. It's just testosterone and or estrogen that dictates where you gain mm -hmm. the weight. So typically in men, men are going to gain their weight in their chest and their upper body, right? It's very rare to see a man with a big old butt and big old hips unless he's really metabolically inflexible and he's got a lot of estrogen dominance or insulin resistance, okay? Mm -hmm. In women, estrogen dictates putting fat on in the lower body. So women have the pear shape where they gain more weight in the gluteal region and the femoral region, right? In the hips. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's what estrogen does. So it dictates that. Now, as you become more insulin resistant and you start to have more insulin dysregulation, which basically means your body is so insulin, uh, just real quick, maybe I'll tell you what insulin does. I'm sure most people know by now, but insulin is basically the gatekeeper and it's secreted by the pancreas. And it, when you eat a big bunch of sugar or carbohydrate or even protein, whatever you're eating, insulin is secreted because the body now detects that there's glucose that needs to be pulled into the cell for energy. And this is a misconception. A lot of people think, well, I'm eating all this carbohydrate and I'm getting all this energy and glucose. Well, it does nothing for you if it doesn't actually get into the cell, okay? Everything else is floating around in the blood. And when it's in the blood, it's damaging because if it can't actually get into the cell to be used as energy to make ATP, which is energy, you, it's going to stay in the blood. And what does it do then? It glycosylates things. So if you see people like, uh, you ever made hard candy? Shh, it just, shh, 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 
it like turns into these little sharp little yeah. edges. Right. That's basically what will happen over time is you have too much glucose in, in the bloodstream, it will glycosylate your red blood cells. And so why do diabetics have more problems with losing their eyesight, their kidneys, the capillaries, the neuropathy in their feet, all these kinds of things. Because imagine you got a bunch of hard candy on your red blood cells trying to go through tiny little capillary beds. It's like sheared glass. And it just over time destroys the capillary bed. So you're going to lose your vision. You're going to lose your kidney function, all these kinds of things. So insulin is this gatekeeper. Insulin's been secreted. It detects glucose. It comes and it says, okay, I'm here glucose, come to me and I will let you into the cell. And it opens up the channels so that glucose can now go into the cell and be used. If you're eating too much carbohydrate and you're not burning it, if you've got too much glucose coming into the system and you're not burning it, um, insulin for a while will keep up with that. So when you're younger, you can do better management of that one because you're just younger and your body can better figure out glycogen stores in your muscle, glucose, excess this, deposit it, store it, whatever. But as you start to get older, insulin sees all this glucose and it's finally like, okay, I got enough. I can't open the gate anymore. We have enough energy. So then what does your body do? It takes it and it stores it and usually it's fat, right? So people start gaining fat. The more you start doing this and you're not moving and you're not burning up energy and your body doesn't see a need for this excess glucose, insulin starts just kind of not doing its job. And then over time, you go eat a big bolus meal of carbohydrate. Your insulin is now sort of like resistant. It's not going to open the door. Mm. It's just like, but your pancreas is getting the signal. There's a bunch of glucose. So what does your pancreas do? It puts out a bunch of insulin because it thinks you need all this glucose, but your cells have now become resistant to opening the door to insulin. And then this causes more problems. So you will see people as they become insulin resistant, their insulin starts going up in their blood. Mm, So if I were to run a fasting insulin on them, I want them to be under eight, preferably. And if they're really, really metabolically healthy, a fasting insulin, first thing in the morning, you should really be between four and five. You start getting over eight, 10, 13, 18, but the range they say is up to 24, which is so silly. If I see somebody with a 24 insulin, they're, they are insulin resistant. And once you get over that, your body is not using insulin. So now let's say you got all this insulin resistance, you got too much blood sugars coming in, you're storing fat, your body needs to store it. And if testosterone is going to dictate where you're going to store that. So where do guys store most of their fat right in their, in their stomach? Yep. They have babies. You see these guys walking around, getting ready to deliver a baby at any moment. Right. And then you see women, insulin resistant women tend to gain it more on the lower body, but they will also gain it in the middle. Typically it's the more postmenopausal women that are going to start gaining it in the middle because now cortisol, estrogen keeps cortisol in check. And when you lose estrogen, cortisol, can it's a blood sugar hormone and it's going to push that insulin and it's secreted the same amount. So if you got stress, if you're not sleeping well, if you're not exercising, you've got insulin resistance, you're going to start getting the tire around the middle as well. So women will come in and be like, what's this? I never had this before. I mean, I've always gained weight in my butt, but now I got it in my stomach. What's going on? So insulin is probably the hormone that we really need to be focusing on if we want to think about long-term health 
not just for our body, but for the brain, because the more insulin resistant we become, the more the blood sugar goes up and the more damage we do and the more toxic and inflammatory exposure the brain has. So I'm assuming as a naturopath, you would uh, gravitate to regulating insulin by diet. Yeah, for sure. So the most important way is to get people to not eat so much carbohydrate. I mean, the carbohydrate that people tend to gravitate towards are simple carbohydrates where they're just eating empty calories and they're not moving enough. Um, and we're not, they're maybe not eating enough complex carbohydrate or they're drinking too much alcohol. Mm -hmm. So alcohol is basically a carbohydrate. Um, it's a sugar. It causes a lot of problems in people if you're over drinking alcohol and you're eating too much simple sugar. There's also a phenomenon sometimes when people like the keto diet and or the carnivore diet and, and all these new diets, maybe even the zone diet. I think I've, you've talked about that on your podcast yeah. a little bit. Yeah. Uh, I think the zone diet was a higher protein diet. Am I correct? Well, it's 40, 30, 30. So 40% of your calories come from carbohydrates, 30 from fat, 30 from protein. Yeah. So it's a little bit more carbohydrate driven, but you're getting most of that from a complex carb, mm -hmm. you know? So you have to remember the average American is eating things that are simple carbs and they're not getting enough of the complex carbon and fiber. Um, in the carnivore diet is a good example. They're not, you're not eating any carbs. Some carnivores do, they're eating some blueberries and honey. They're eating more natural, like ancestral, like things, uh, the carnivore carnivores might've eaten back in the day, but the reason that they survive is because the body has a protein threshold. And once it reaches the protein threshold, it turns it into carbohydrates. Mm. So they're still able to get carbohydrates. So people think, Oh God, they're going to die. They're not getting any carbohydrate. Well, no, that's not how the body works because meat and organs and suet and the things that they're eating organs and fat, natural fats from animals they have all the fats, all the essential fatty acids. They're definitely high in protein, but they're also going to be converted to carbohydrate once you hit that protein threshold. And this is, um, and I think the reason that the carnivore diet has worked really well for people with like autoimmune disease is because it's not pushing insulin as much as right. diets that have carbohydrate in them and insulin and blood sugar dysregulation it causes more of that inflammation. And so, especially in autoimmune conditions, you know, that's more of an inflammatory condition. And so that can be really helpful for people. Um, I've seen it actually work quite well. And people that do have some autoimmune conditions mm -hmm. where they just are eating meat, you can't just eat. Well, some people do, they just eat steak. They eat like two steaks a day and that's all they eat. And yeah. you wonder like, but they're, they have, you have to get adequate salt and there's, there's a lot of things involved there, but yeah. Um, what's interesting about what I hear, I hear you saying is that there's a lot of different diets. There's a lot of different conditions. Somebody that finds themselves in the situation that you just described of maybe basically drinking too much alcohol and eating too much carbohydrates and being fat and not moving very much. You just described, Oh, I don't know, 70% of the population, maybe. I mean, that is. So a I very... think 80%, I think only, I want to say 18% of the population is metabolically flexible. Okay. I think 43% of the United States population is obese. Well, that's, that's interesting not just too, overweight. because I, I almost, <laughs> I almost qualify as obese with a six pack. 
because I am yeah. five foot eight and 185 pounds and that doesn't fit in with the, the chart. Well, I think, I think we're, I think statistics are interesting because, you know, where are they getting the statistics from? Who are they testing? I would just take that as you obviously body type definitely matters. So if you have a short stocky guy that is muscular, his um, BMI is going to be high. And if they're strictly going off, BMI is a really horrible indicator yes, for no uh, obesity. And that's what they're doing it on. So let's just, let's just do common sense. Okay. And I know that in today's world, common sense is sort of like flown out the door, but let's just do some <laughs> common sense. Um, <laughs> common sense. If you go out into, let's like go to your shopping mall. Okay. Just go to the shopping mall in your town and walk around. And out of every 10 people that you count, tell me how many of those people look metabolically flexible. Okay. And when you say metabolically so, flexible, describe that one more time because I want they to They look sure. like they have good body, um, like they don't look like they want or care, like men. Let's take a man, for example, take 10 men at your shopping mall and from the ages of, let's say 30 to 50. Okay. And look at their body shape. Do they, are they carrying a baby for one? Okay. Are they looking like they have way too much weight on them? Mm -hmm. um, how do they look? How does their skin look? How do they, do they look right. vibrant? So that do would they be metabolically energetic? flexible so, or metabolically inflexible? So metabolically flexible are people that tend to be um, leaner in body mass. They have more lean body mass, so lean muscle mass than fat on their body. Um, and they look, I mean, I wouldn't say they look healthier. That's a really bad thing. But I say, if you look at lean body mass versus having more fat on, who are the people that have less fat on? Now there is a, there is an exception to that. So you can take the really skinny guy <laughs> that's like right. not doing anything that the guy that's overweight is doing. And he looks skinny. He doesn't look like he's overweight, but he doesn't look like he has good lean body mass. He looks too skinny, right? So he's also going to be what we call skinny fat. And he's going to have a higher percent of body fat for mm -hmm. his weight. So you have to take that. But it is like common sense. It doesn't take much to go out into society, go to an airport. Oh, right. my gosh. Yeah, the airport. And just look at people. And I don't mean this in a judgmental way, because I I mean, everybody's different. There's so many different body types. That's why BMI, BMI sucks, because yeah. you got short people, tall people. There's always going to be people that are bigger than other people. There's definitely women. I mean, I'm a. I'm a tall, thin woman. And, um, you know, for me to put a lot of weight on, if it, that's not muscle is kind of hard for me to do. Right. But there's women that are bigger than me and they're always going to be bigger than me, but you, you know, a healthy looking person when mm -hmm. you see one. Right. Okay. And unfortunately in today's world, it's getting harder and harder to see those metabolically flexible people within the community. And I think that's, I think the biggest reason for that is one, the food supply is poisoned. And the second reason would be that we are just such a sedentary culture now. And we exercise purposely. <laughs> we don't have a lot of daily living activities that require us to be metabolically flexible. Meaning you don't have to get up in the morning and walk two miles right. to the river to get your water. Right. And you don't have to kneel down and scoop water out of the river and be flexible in your back and your knees and your, in your body. Right. And you don't have to haul that water back two miles 
being balanced and strong in your core and building your shoulders and all that. You don't have to do that anymore. You go turn the tap on. Okay. Mm -hmm. You go get in the shower. So easy to do. Now, this has been a long time coming. I mean, most people have been able to just go get in a shower for a long time. Um, but in the span of human existence, it's a very short right. time. So we are not doing, we don't have the daily activities that our ancestors used to have just to survive. And in that we've lost a lot, we've lost a lot of primal movement, I guess is what you would say that, that our body is burning up energy to do stuff. Mm. Um, and so we also overeat and we overconsume. I mean, our society is a great example of all that in every way. We overconsume on everything. We overconsume on food. We overconsume on alcohol. We overconsume on drugs. We overconsume on media. We overconsume on fear. We overconsume on porn. We overconsume on like all these things, right? And and you know that it seems like more is better, but too much is not good. Right. 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 And um, it's the same as having an eating disorder the other way not consuming enough. And we see nutrient deficiency in obese people, just like we see nutrient deficiency in anorexic people. So it goes both ways. And the more weight that you have on you, that's not metabolically flexible. means you have more low grade inflammation. And when you have more low grade inflammation, you require a lot more nutrient capacity to help you get through that. And then that pushes you more into disease states. Like cardiovascular disease, which killed way more people last year than COVID did, probably three times as many or more. And most of the people that actually got COVID and died from COVID, okay, not got COVID, lots of people got COVID. I mean, I think I got COVID. I, I didn't even know I was sick. I, my daughter couldn't smell hmm. and we'd all been not feeling that great, but like, I didn't get sick. I don't. I didn't have one respiratory symptom, but like my neighbor down the street, he could be metabolically unflexible and have cardiovascular disease underlying. He doesn't know it. He gets COVID. It's a bad deal, right? So cardiovascular disease is a comorbidity from a lot of the people that died with COVID. And so you've got cardiovascular disease, you've got diabetes, you've got cancer, um, actually medical mistakes, <laughs> medical mistakes was higher. COVID took its place, but yeah. <laughs> um, so I'm just saying like, these are metabolically, these are things that happen over time as we age, but they are also very inflammatory diseases. And they started really young and they started with, you know, this movement towards metabolic inflexibility. Right. So in your business of, of uh, seeing patients every day, you're seeing this all the time. What, what's the answer? Um, I think the answer is very complex. because we have a complex society today that um, we have so much convenience and life is really easy. I hate to say that for us, first world Americans and Europeans and British and Australians, like whatever, you know, people that live in the first world, our life is very easy. And um, we have become used to the things that make our life easy. And so what we have to do is we actually have to work much harder at creating a very fulfilling, active, healthy life for ourselves. Because if we don't work at that, it's very easy to slide into the narrative that you can just have everybody else do everything for you. 
and you can buy your food all prepackaged and you can have no relationship to it. And, you know, you can just go buy your meat at the grocery store and in a nice little prepackaged thing. And you don't have to garden and you don't have to learn the soil and you don't have to put your hands in blood. You don't have to do any of that. You can just have an easy life and pay for other people to do that for you. And that's that used to be for wealthy people, right? That was royalty. Right. The, the royalty, you know, I talk a lot about sugar. I've done some talks on sugar. The slave trade in the United States was based on the royalty in Europe wanting white sugar. And how do you get white sugar from sugarcane? It's very laborious. It make, takes a lot of people, at least back in that day, takes a lot of people to make this very beautiful, sweet white sugar. And the only people that were eating white sugar were royalty because it was expensive because it was so laborious. So they needed manpower to make sugar for the royalty. So what did they do? They started the triangle of slave trade. They took the ships to Africa. They got African slaves. They brought them to the West Indies and to the area sort of that you live in, you know, the, the Indies, the Bahamas, the Dominican Republic, that whole area, um, Southern United States. And they started using slaves to make sugar from sugar cane. And then they took the boats back to England and back to Europe and they gave it to the wealthy, rich royals like Versailles and, um, you know, all the people that were eating white cake and white this and white that because it was very expensive. And so um, how did I get on that? (laughs) Well, we were sugar. talking about the answer. So, uh, yeah. The so answer. the answer is like, it used to be very hard to get these things, right? Nobody that was poor, and I would have been considered maybe a poor person in that day, a peasant, whatever. I was a farmer. I worked the land. I was not eating white sugar. I could not afford white sugar. I could not afford to even, I could not afford to own slaves to make me white sugar. And I didn't want to make it. So I ate whole grains. I ate berries. I ate foods I grew in my garden. I ate things I wild harvested from the forest and I ate animals that I killed. That's and fish that I caught out of the ocean. That's how I lived. And that's how lots of natives in this country before colonialism came, that's how they lived. Right. And there's this And they were traditionally very healthy, robust people without mental disease and without a lot of the conditions that we see today that are inflammatory in nature. And so life has become so easy and we now have sugar. How many pounds of sugar does a person eat white sugar that used to be so hard to get and change the world? 180. It's everywhere. Yeah, it's in everything. You have to read labels. You have to read labels or you're just eating sugar all day long, right? If you're eating prepared foods. Mm -hmm. So you have to teach people. My big thing is if you don't already know how to cook food, if you you don't already know that you got to move your body, um, let's start there. Like you got to start there. And yeah, you may come in really sick and we may need to put you on a medication to get you started. Because boy, if you keep that blood pressure up, or you keep those blood sugars up, it's not going to be good. So you can always start with some high force things if you need to, to help people get healthier. But the goal with naturopathic medicine, highest force is surgery and drugs. Mm. And where does conventional medicine usually go straight to? Both of those. 
surgery and drugs. And so if you can get people to do the lowest harm or what we call low force intervention, diet is low force intervention because diet is, has a huge therapeutic window side effects of diet, unless you're eating a lot of crappy food, side effects are really big. So most people don't have side effects unless they have allergies or whatnot. And again, that's also just a complication of eating poor food your whole life and your body just being trashed. Whereas drugs have very small therapeutic windows. Like you take a drug, you're probably gonna have a side effect because it works in this window. And then everything outside of there is gonna have a side effect. Then you gotta take another drug to fix that side effect. Then you gotta do that kind of thing. So, and surgeries are great. And hey, surgeries save lives. There's no doubt about it. I mean, I've had surgeries that I absolutely had to have. I might not be here if I hadn't had those surgeries. However, just running to the thought that surgery is going to fix these problems. Great, great one are like uh, lap, you know, the, the, the weight loss surgeries. Um, I have had patients lose an amazing amount of weight with lap bands. Like they absolutely needed them. Um, but then they've developed eating disorders because, you know, when you have a lap band, you can't even eat this. You, you can't even eat this much food like you will throw up. You will be sick. So you get nutrient deficiencies. Well, what happens to your brain if you have nutrient deficiencies? Now you're skinny and maybe your insulin resistance isn't as bad, but <laughs> your body can't absorb anything because it can't actually get food in there because your most of your stomach has been shut down so that wow. you lose the weight. Um, so, and then of course we can get into the subconscious culture of, you know, being perfect and looking perfect and all that. And for me, the older I get, it is not about looking perfect. It's about feeling good, feeling good. And you may have some weight on you. You may be a bigger person. You may be overweight by the BMI, like that to me is not important. Like when you get on the scale, like get off the scale, first of all, just, just throw the scale away. Like you don't need the scale. How do you feel? And what is your body composition? Cause you know, the harder you start working and the more you start moving and the more intentional you become, your body will change. Even if the scale doesn't necessarily say a whole lot to you. Yeah. So what I tell patients is we're looking for body composition and we're looking for how you feel if you feel like crap every morning and you can't get out of bed and you go to bed at night and you have to take sleep medication and, and you have to drink coffee every morning and you can't do these things. And if you start doing little baby steps and you start getting out of bed in the morning with energy and you're like, I want to work out in the morning. That's a huge milestone. Like you should be so proud of yourself because six months ago you couldn't do that. Right. That means you're becoming more metabolically flexible. Your body is getting the right cortisol surge in the morning. You're getting up. Your body wants to move, which is natural. Everybody used to get up in the morning and have chores. Right. You got up and you did stuff, you know? Um, so I think that it's very complex and well, it there's seem, also- it seems complex, but, but like when you, when you talk about it and, and you use a little bit of common sense, like what you're saying is we we're moving less, we're eating things that we shouldn't be eating that are, that are weird, like super processed food and lots of sugar and things like that. Combine that with alcohol and then not moving. When you, when you look at that and it's like, okay, well, how do we get back to, you know, what we used to do? Like we used to get up and work. We used to carry things. We used to have to lift things. We used to have to work out in the sun. So get some sun, um, get a workout that resembles farm work. Like it doesn't, I don't know, lift stuff, move stuff, carry stuff, walk, run, all of that kind of stuff is, is basically, you know, you can pay a lot of money at a CrossFit gym to have people tell you to do exactly those things. Um, and then, you know, 
eat the way that that you would eat if you were growing it all yourself. Like mm-hmm. you're going to eat you're going to eat as close to the source as possible. You're going to eat as little processed food as possible. So vegetables and meat and you know, that's it. Like that would get you way closer to feeling good, I think. Yeah, I think the reason that I have really kind of lo- started have loved working in the hunting community is that this is a community of people that really understand their food. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that everything they eat is healthy because a lot of people are getting their fresh wild game or their fish or like whatever, and they're still eating garbage, processed food and too many potatoes, too much white rice, like whatever they're eating. And so it's not a judgment thing, but I do think that the community of outdoors people that do harvest food and take it home and eat it, that you, you, you have this deep connection with it. That's very different than when you go to the grocery store and you buy it and you have no connection to it. And there's something about that connection that I think is ancestrally within us, the signal that tells our body, this is something that I am going to utilize. Right. And you can think I'm a little woo woo on this, but I've experienced it in my own life, growing a garden. I've experienced it with my husband, us, you know, my daughter killed her first mule deer this last fall. And I went on that hunt and I've never been on a hunt with my husband. So I got to be there and watch her do that, clean the animal, um, you know, break the animal down, go through the organs, decide what organs we wanted to take. See, so get all the meat off, carry the bone, do all that hard work, carry it out on my back at night. Cause my husband's seriously into killing animals right before dark and then doing <laughs> night hikes out in the snow, in the wind, exhausted, wake up the next day. And there is a sense of satisfaction that is unlike any satisfaction you will get going to a grocery store and putting me in your cart. Because all of a sudden you have this neural association, this hormonal association to this animal that gave you took this animal's life. Now you are working hard to get this animal back home so that you can eat this animal and you can take the nutrition from this animal. And so your whole idea of like food and food waste and just throwing stuff away, it just radically changes it. And I think that that is probably, I feel like the biggest thing that we've lost in our culture is this respect for food in a way that our ancestors had, because like you have to eat, you can't survive. It's the same thing with water. Like how many times have you gone without water? And literally when you got water, you were so grateful for water and, and being out on boats, like being on salt water, like you could probably totally a hundred percent relate to that is like the importance of clean drinking water is so vital. We can't live, we can live without food for quite a while, but we cannot live without water. And you know, if you've never been through that experience or you've never had an experience where water is a shortage and it is so precious, uh, you just don't understand it. And I think food is the same way. And I've talked about this on numerous other podcasts, but you know, the soil, the soil is the microbiome of the earth, you know, and we have a very specific microbiome and the soil is the microbiome and our soil and our planet has been really reduced to nothing. It's, and so the people that are 
the, the soil manages the plants. It manages the animals. It takes in everything, the animal waste, the, the, and it turns it into nutrition for humans, right? And plants and animals again, and there's a cycle of life. So I think that we have just lost making everything so easy for us. We have lost that connection. And when you get that, I think you just have a little bit more respect, not only for the process, but I hope that in that you have more respect for yourself. Because what is the truth about this? People aren't respecting themselves when they trash their body. Yeah. And <laughs> they, they don't even know that they're doing it sometimes, though. No, I it's mean, so subconscious and it's not a judgment, but you don't even realize you're doing it. But it's easy to do in this day and age. Sure. Just so yeah, easy. Yeah, it's super easy to do. But I, I'm with you on on the respect and, the, and, and getting your own food and all of that. But I also know tons of people that hunt and eat almost entirely wild game and are still super fat. And, uh, it's yep. because of, you know, everything that goes along with it. So it's, yep. it, that's, it's not, I mean, that is awesome and fantastic and it's a great source, but it's not entirely the answer. The answer is somehow to regain control of your health. And that is to realize the condition that you're in and actually do something about it. And that's where mm -hmm. somebody like you comes in. When we talk about all of these different diets, you got the carnivore diet and paleo and keto and, and, mm -hmm. um, the zone and, and all these different diets. And it seems like someone might be able to pick one and it's a good choice for them. And they're going to have amazing results and they're going to reset their blood markers right to where they're supposed to be. But other people go from one to another, to another, to another, and they get a little bit of results on this one. And then they blow up between getting to the next one. And then they, then they lose a bunch of weight and then they gain some more. So what about from a, from a nutritional or a nutritionist perspective of how does someone know what, I mean, they find themselves in this condition. Maybe they're, they're, they're getting their own fish. They're getting their own food. They're, they're hunting, but they're still overweight. Like, where does that person go? Like to the nutritionist to, uh, to look at the blood and where, mm -hmm. look at the blood first and then start to, to, uh, tailor a diet towards moving it in the right direction. Or what do you suggest? Well, I definitely believe that everybody, and I, I believe it's good to have some baseline numbers. I think that helps, uh, men, especially I do a lot of men's health. I think men are much more logical, factual beings by nature, and that they sometimes perform better when they can actually see physical, uh, they have the physicality in front of them of like, okay, here's what your blood sugar is, and here's what your testosterone is, and here's what your lipids are doing. And they may have more motivation to make some changes on that if somebody's actually explaining to them what that means and um, how to get there. And then what we're going to do to get there. A lot of guys maybe goal, especially if you're goal oriented, like you need a goal, it could be nice to get those blood markers done. And then you can see how they change over time with what you've done and what therapies we've, we've added. Um, I think that a healthcare provider, depending on if they're the right one or even a nutritionist or a trainer at the gym, somebody holding you accountable I think is very important. And um, a lot of people don't want to admit that they 
are not doing stuff right, or they don't know how to do it, or they feel they're humiliated, or like you said, you know, they still eat wild game, but they're still overweight. And they, they really don't know, like, what, what do I do? And they don't want you to like talk down to them. That's the other thing. People don't like being talked down to by healthcare providers. And the minute you do that to a person, <laughs> they are going to run in the other direction and they're typically not going to do what you ask them yeah, to well, do. Most, so, time, most time the healthcare providers saying, well, you really need to lose a little weight. And you're looking at the healthcare care provider going, well, yeah. you too. Like, what are you going to do? You're, you're healthcare 80 pounds overweight. What yep. you're telling me I need to lose weight. Like, come on, man. Health providers are some of the most unhealthiest people out there. I would hundred percent agree with you. Like, and I've had people make comments like that all the time. I think it is entrusted in healthcare providers for us to be role models and to do the things that we need to be doing in our daily life to show to our patients that we are doing the work as well. And not just by the way we look, but by the actions that we take again, like, you know, and, and of course, there's always good to have some empathy when you're working with people mm -hmm. because everybody's coming from a different place. And I've been totally guilty of this. I'm really like a cheerleader. I want you to do it. Let's get it. Let's go. Let's be wonderful. <laughs> Not everybody's ready for that. Some people are totally turned off by that. They're like, oh my gosh, she just dumped all this stuff on me. And then they start having a panic attack because then they realize like all the things they need to do and it's overwhelming. And then they get analysis paralysis, right? And then they start getting overwhelmed and they don't do anything and they don't come back for this, for that reason. And so I've learned, I've learned in a lot of people that are starting this process of changing their health, you got to go slow. Sometimes you can't dump you can't dump the whole truck on them at once. You, right. you got to give them little bits. And so what I do is the labs are a great first place to start where I can say, okay, we have some work we need to do here. And here's where we go. Um, some people, just like I said, need to find somebody to hold them accountable or they need to get a workout partner or they need to just, um, you know, find something that's going to motivate them to do the changes. Cause typically most people just need to move more and eat less. Now, not eat less food. They need to eat less of the crappy food, right? Mm. Um, and and it's really simple. And they need to go to bed earlier. And they need to like turn their phone off at a certain time. They need to turn off from the world. They need to go do stuff with their family and not be on their phone and not be plugged in all the time. So sometimes it's like, you don't have to go to the doctor, but if you're having symptoms and you are quite overweight and you're having a difficult time losing it, you can guess that your organs and your brain are inflamed and having problems. So it's probably a good idea to get your baseline labs done. That's what I would say. Yeah. But a lot of people, you just need to start with the basics. Just try to go to bed an hour earlier and get up a little earlier and go outside for a walk. I mean, see, I don't live in a really warm place. So the summers here, like you worked here in the summers, you understand the mm -hmm. summers here are glorious, but the winters, it's dark a lot. And I am not getting up at 5 a.m. to go walk outside when it's 20 below zero, right? Right. So I always love, like, when I go to Arizona or I go to Florida or I go to these warm places where you could literally get out of bed in the morning in January and you can walk outside and it's 65 degrees and beautiful. Like, that would be my dream, you know? So if you live someplace like that, you just got to get up and just 
go move your body a little bit. Even a 20 minute walk will do you so much good for the rest of your day, right? You don't have to be doing kettlebells and CrossFit like you and me and throwing stuff around, but just get outside. And there is research now showing because we're exposed to so much blue light that we are not getting enough of daylight, right? We're not getting enough of the natural light that we need. And so the first thing you should do in the morning is you should stimulate your eyes with natural light. The natural light starts the metabolic process of all your hormones in your body and it stimulates cortisol. It helps that cortisol awakening response so that you get up and you get energy. So a lot of people put these blackout curtains on their windows. And I've done that before too, because here in the summer, it doesn't get dark till 11 o'clock at night and it's light at like four in the morning. But I've noticed that if I just have a nice curtain on my window in my bedroom, when this natural light comes in in the morning, whatever time that is, it stimulates me to wake up. And when the sun is shining, even if it's early, I get up better. It's easier for me to do. So sometimes, you know, not blacking out all that natural light and getting outside, my gosh, just go outside and get away from all the electrical lights. That could be one just simple thing to start getting your blood sugar, your insulin, your cortisol more regulated to start your day. Nice. I like that. And then vitamin D, obviously super important. And, uh, Oh yeah. Um, We could do like hours on vitamin D. Yeah. But when you're, when you're like, I don't know, you, you hear about people that like they go to the beach and they, they, you know, they're, they feel, they always say like, I feel so good after I've gone to the beach. And and then Mm -hmm. you think about it. It's like, well, you've been cooped up in an office. You haven't been walking around. You go to the beach, you walk barefoot on the beach in the seawater for miles. You're getting tons of vitamin D. You're probably sleeping more than you did. Of course you're feeling great. You're getting all this energy from the beach and the water and the sun. And yeah, like. Isn't it interesting the draw that humans have to the beach? I've always thought about that. And it's because the beach um, has negative ions. So there's tons So um, all this blue light and all the electrical lights stimulate positive ions, which are actually somewhat detrimental to our cells. The beach, the ocean stimulates negative ions. Mm. And that's what we need to calm the cells down. So it's funny, even if like me, I'm landlocked and I live in the mountains. The thought of going to the beach, even just going to the beach is very relaxing for me. Um, Like if you've ever been to Hawaii to the beach or, you know, um, Florida, my dad lived in Savannah, Georgia when I was in high school. So I spent most, a lot of summers in Savannah and we would go down to St. Augustine a lot. And I love St. Augustine because it was these big, beautiful white sandy beaches. Um, And of course I grew up here. So it was so exotic for me to do that, but there's something about the beach and it's that negative ion. I think it's the sound of the water, um, the feet in the sand, and you have to actively move muscles that you don't normally move when you're walking in sand. There's definitely something therapeutic, I think for all people. And I think that's why beaches tend to be because of the vitamin D and the sun, but I also think it's that negative ion and it's that relaxing feeling you get when you're around the water, swimming in the warm water, being in that environment that people all over the world are drawn to beaches and to the water. And I think it's because of that. There's power and you can feel it. And everyone does. I mean, they may just think, oh, well, it's just the time away from work or it's just, it's just, you know, whatever, a vacation. I need a vacation. But maybe what you really needed was like walking around in the sand and getting vitamin D and 
and Mm -hmm. sleeping a little bit more. So what I'm getting Mm -hmm. out of this whole thing is what we need to do is we need to hunt. We need to fish. (laughs) We need to walk on the beach so we can go bone fishing and that will do it. Like you'll be a super healthy person if you just hang out at the beach and go bone fishing. Get a job where you get more than two weeks off a year. (laughs) I mean... Seriously, this whole thing, the American way of working, like if you've ever gone to Europe and I mean, I love America, I'm American, like all the way around, but I've traveled the world quite a bit and a lot of cultures that are a lot less stressed out than us, they eat all kinds of crap. They drink wine, they eat cheese, they eat gluten, yeah, they, they are not overweight and they are you know, they do not have the metabolic diseases that we have here in the United States. And I am convinced the insulin dysregulation and the metabolic diseases is from stress hmm. because we, as a culture, we are that independent, go get them. I'm not taking a break. Entrepreneurial people, Americans are like that. It's just, it's just ingrained in who we are, but that also means we don't value relaxation and we don't value the siesta and we don't value the downtime. And you've got to have both. And in America, you know, two weeks off a year, are you kidding me? Like that's not even enough time to like, you know, wind down if you've got a really stressful life and vacation can be stressful. A lot of people say, Oh my God, I took my whole family on a vacation. I couldn't wait to get back. It was stressing (laughs) the crap out of me, but like taking more time off more three day weekends, like something, or, you know, if your job sucks and it's totally stressing you out and it is wrecking your health, You got to rethink that. Like, I know people make a lot of money and money is really important and everybody's striving to make the dollar. And, uh, you know, I I work in Bozeman, Montana, so we don't live too far from the Yellowstone Club. As you know, this is uh, probably one of the richest places in the world. People have ridiculous amounts of money that you can't even fathom having in your life. But, you know, to make that kind of money, the amount of stress that these people are under and social stress and just, I can't even imagine. And it doesn't matter. Money still like you're still going to have stress in your life. So if you're just trying to chase the dollar and you're wrecking your health over it, which is I where I think a lot of this unhealthy stuff comes from, life has become too simple, too convenient, and they've made it easy for us so we can work more. Yeah. And that's what we've done. And we've worked more and we've worked our health into an absolute disgraceful place that we have to climb out of somehow. And I think a big piece of that is learning how to relax and not be constantly, constantly going. Well, that's what we'll talk about when I have you on the podcast next time, how to (laughs) relax and different, different techniques (laughs) and methods that we can use to relax. But, um, yeah, I loved this conversation. It was awesome. And, um, you know, I, what I, what I believe is that, you know, no matter where you are, you can, you can turn it all around. I mean, you really can. It's just a matter you of, really can. of you really can. finding some help sometimes, finding somebody that can help you. Or, I mean, mm-hmm. it's not all just discipline and, and, and all that. That certainly plays into it. Finding somebody that can help you and, and getting on a pathway to, to where you're making some steady progress. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a year later, people couldn't, wouldn't believe where they could be. Um, oh, yeah. You just have to make a step. Just, just make a step, ask for help. So many times it just starts with people just asking for help, you know, just reaching out to somebody. It could be someone as simple as a counselor, could be somebody as simple as a nutritionist. It it could be your spouse, like just asking for some help. 
and um, realizing that none of us do this by ourselves, you know? Right. Well, if people wanted to uh, learn more about you or find out all the stuff that you're doing, where would they go? Yeah. So we have a website, huntharvesthealth.com. That's an informational website with recipes, blogs, lots of hunting, health, relationships, gardening, really kind of our big interests are on there. Um, And some programs, some free programs you can download. Uh, the health programs, like I said, the cognoscopies on there. If you wanted to see those labs, you could download those. We also have a supplement company called Stealthy Stahealthy with an H, Nutrition. Our original brand was called Stahealthy Hunter. It's my husband's Instagram handle, Stahealthy Hunter. Um, Stealthy Nutrition, and we do high quality medical grade supplements that are very strategic and we're very new. We mainly sell, we started selling CBD in the hunting industry, which was really interesting um, and has turned out really well. And then we're also going into non-CBD products. And so we have that stahealthynutrition.com. And then if you, I mean, if you live in Montana or Washington and you wanted to see me as a patient, you can contact elevatehealthmt.com, make a free consult with me. If you live in another state, you're just required to come here for your first visit to see me. And then a lot of stuff can be done over telemedicine these days. But uh, those are the, and then of course we're on Instagram, Facebook, huntharvesthealth.com. All right. Uh, Yeah. All right. Well, Hillary, thank you very much. And uh, I'll uh, continue listening to your show and learn more and more about how I can be a healthier person. Thanks, Tom. It was fun. All right. Thank you. See you. Bye.